Hey everyone, it's Mark and welcome to Article Club. We are an experiment in community reading where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. This month we're discussing How the Black Vote Became a Monolith by Theodore R. Johnson. It's a great article and I'm happy to announce that it's looking like we're going to have a record turnout at our discussion on Sunday, February 28th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. If you haven't signed up but want to, please do. You can email me at mark at highlighter.cc to reserve your spot. But before talking for too long, I want to get right to the point of today's podcast episode, which is to bring you an interview of Dr. Johnson that Soraya and I were fortunate to do last week. It was so great to have this conversation with him. Dr. Johnson talked about his work at the Brennan Center for Justice, expanded on some of the main points of his article, and offered his thoughts about the future of voting and political engagement for Black Americans. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for doing Article Club. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. So Sarai and I have some questions for you. The first one I'll take, which is, okay, so you are a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. So like senior fellow, like that seems very, I like that. And so what does that yeah. mean? And also like, what, what are you excited about right now? What are you working on right now as a senior fellow? Yeah, so senior fellow basically is like a, at a think tank, is like a professor without students. So you get to do all of the writing, all of the research, and none of the teaching that usually would come with like a, a tenure track university position. So I, I love students and I, I do adjunct teach on the side, but I love the idea of being able to go into work with questions and spend my day investigating those questions. And all of the questions I investigate are about how we can make a more racially equitable society and strengthen our democracy. And uh, that sounds like those two things are really compatible, but oftentimes the more strides you take towards racial equity, the more um, certain actors in a democratic system try to leverage that uh, initiative or, or that effort to divide the public uh, and, and for political expediency's sake in order to hold onto office or, or curry favor with certain coalitions. So it's uh, really challenging work, uh, really, uh, I think really important work. Uh, and so I spend my days writing long form essays like the ones we'll talk about today, op-eds responding to current affairs or political moments and uh, thinking about longer projects like books or uh, public events where we can bring some of the scholarship and empirical research to the public in a way that's accessible and helps them understand how theory and research applies to the, the, sort of the practical application of it. Cool, thank you. And Sarai, at any point, jump on For in. Sure. I'm like, I'm like, I would love to know. I would love to know more about that, like on a job, a job trajectory path. But I feel like that's mm. like another conversation because you don't often hear about um, folks who are excited about um, learning and teaching getting to spend that time doing that thought formation, right? So yeah, right. your job for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm. I've just become the director of the fellows program over the last few months. And I'm looking to reorient it and expand it to focus on questions of racial equality, gender equality, the future of the Constitution, and uh, things like civic education and social cohesion, how we can create effective bonds between the public in a multiracial, multiethnic uh, democracy. Uh, the Brennan Center's mission writ large, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank slash legal advocacy firm where we look to defend voting rights, uh, reform the electoral system to get camp, um, dark money out of our elections. Uh, we also work to end the mass incarceration 
and then to protect people's civil liberties from government surveillance and things like immigration or uh, like the recent Muslim ban, we fight the federal government and states that infringe on folks' civil liberties in those ways. Yeah, that's cool. just yeah, that's just so interesting. Like you say that all the stuff that you're working on right now that's super inspiring, but that in your piece that we're we're all reading, like you acknowledge right at the beginning that like the first time you voted, you were 33 years old. So like, what is what was that all about? Yeah, it, you know, at first writing that, I was kind of ashamed, and I, and frankly, um, I never admitted that publicly until I wrote the piece because. For one, my parents are children of the Jim Crow generation. My father grew up in South Carolina. My mother grew up in Georgia in segregated schools and communities, uh, indigent, sharecroppers, et cetera. And so for them, um, voting was a big deal. And when they came of age, you had to be 21 to vote. So they were in college and they took it seriously and they voted in every election and primary, et cetera, since. So to recognize that history and then to voluntarily opt out of it isn't, wasn't a particular point of pride for me. But I think I had gotten comfortable, like most Americans. And, and frankly, I grew up, my parents had it tough, but they went to college and were IBMers for their entire career. So I grew up like Theo Huxtable on The Cosby Show and didn't face the sort of uh, oppression and dangers that they did. Certainly, I was discriminated against in different ways, but nothing like they faced. So I took a lot of it for granted. Uh, I also served in the military, so I kind of felt like, you know, who's going to tell me that I'm not doing my part as an American if I'm serving in the military? But the biggest thing was, uh, I think uh, last year or the year before, the Knight Foundation found that 100 million voting eligible Americans sit out every presidential election. And so um, it, it made me realize that in admitting that I'd opted out, I was actually um, I was providing a, a, a lens into those 100 million Americans who choose not to vote. And so sharing my story, I think, um, one, a lot, a lot of people could see themselves in my story and, and their decisions not to vote. And then a lot of folks who look at folks like me and, uh, you know, how could you be a grandchild of, of sharecroppers and not vote? and get a better understanding of why it was that I chose not to. So um, sharing that personal story up front was a way of bringing the readers in and uh, sort of going on this journey with me instead of preaching from uh, a pedestal of saying, you know, we have responsibilities and, and the nation has not lived up to its principles and citizens are not living up to their responsibilities. We've got to get it together. I wanted to show, no, I've, I'm in this fight with you. I'm learning alongside you the history, the responsibilities. So let's, let's take this journey together. Like, honestly, like, when I read that, I was like, all right, you know, like, cool. Like, I, I, I tend to be of the of the opinion that, like, we oftentimes try to, like, place blame on people mm -hmm. who don't engage, like, in a system that has, honestly, like, removed entire sections of culture, removed entire sections of people's family. Um, and then it's often said, like, oh, my God, you're not doing your job. It's like, well, come on. And then when you talk about, like, all these things about how the Black vote um, how there's conservatism and liberalism within Black politics, but not in the Black vote, like it, it gets, it creates even more dissonance. And honestly, you can tell in my tone, it like makes me even more angry. Like <laughs> the ways that, the ways that um, Black politics don't get talked about because of this like monolith. Um, and mm. then people are allowed to go ahead and judge people who don't necessarily want to engage in that process. Um, right. Like, and so, right, there's that piece of it, right? And there's this piece of like, okay, well, things are different now. Like, we, you know, we have a job to do, like, blah, blah, blah. but like, if you look at it, and I think this was one of the points in your piece is that like, you know, 
even within your own family, even your parents had differences politically, but they would have voted maybe the same. And right. so like that, that creates this like gap, this like chasm to where, you know, number one, like white people are allowed, or politicians are allowed to think that we're all the same. And number two, we're not allowed to really talk to each other about what our differences are. Yeah, it's so, there's just so much like sociology and political science yeah. and history to sort of throw at it. But I think generally speaking, black folks are just like every other kind of American. When you ask Americans, why don't you vote? They say, I think politicians are corrupt. I don't think the government cares about me. Government's not responsive to what I wanted to do. So my, and, and participating in the voting process, registering, finding my place to vote, um, you know, looking through all these candidates, some of whom I don't know who they are, what they stand for, what their policy agenda is. And I'm supposed to go through all of this effort just to create a system that doesn't respond to what I want from it. Uh, and so they, they, they wonder, they question whether or not it's worth their time. And, um, and the burden I think that, that Black folks are saddled with is, I hear that, but do you know how many people died for you just to have the option to vote? Do you know how many right. people bled and fought right. to get this right? And you're just going to toss it away and not, not take advantage of it? But women did that, the same thing to get to the 19th Amendment. And white immigrants had the same sort of fight. So every group has had to struggle to, voting has never been, universal suffrage has never been an American principle. It's never been something that the nation agreed was an unquestionable good. Every generation has had to fight to make our democracy more inclusive. So every nation or every group in the country has this story about people before you fought for this right and you're not taking advantage of it. So in, in this way, Black folks are, are very much like, like other groups, but the Black experience is not. It's very distinct. And again, oppression has touched a little bit of everyone, but chattel slavery was a very unique kind of evil. And so to come from slavery to a point where you can participate in democracy is a journey that should not be taken for granted. And, um, and so, so you've got that. And then you've got this, you've sort of got this added responsibility to, despite the, uh, the unresponsiveness of the system. And then you've got a kind of politics that exploits racism in order to divide people and, and subjugate some and, and sort of privilege others. So now you're telling black folks, um, not only do you have this responsibility, but you also have to dilute or depress your own political right. preferences. And for yeah, the sake that's what you of said. your group, right? Exactly. For the sake of your group, because the only way you can ever touch a little bit more freedom is if you all work together in the way that you vote, even if your politics are disparate. And those two burdens of democracy are the things that Black Americans saddle in a unique way. It's, it's a, a, a phenomenon that's being discussed more, more in public that historians and political scientists have been you know, uncovering for, time, for quite a few years. It's a whole thing to unpack, right? Because yeah, like when you think lot. about it, like when you're talking about in your article, you had talked about the way capitalism was used, the way that compromises were used to the way that rights were given and kind of like this bartering, this like promise right. giving situation. And it seems that like you can expect a couple things, right? It seems that you can expect like white people to be able or, you know, privileged groups to be able to vote for nuance, whereas, you know, Black folks and, and marginalized folks are literally voting to try to stay alive, like to try to evade right. white terror. The word choice, some of the word choices that you use when you're talking about like the Black vote, you call it existential and utilitarian, like very practical, mm -hmm. very for like a reason larger than ourselves, right? Um, right. 
And that per to me, again, is particularly infuriating, especially when you, when you're like counting down to individual votes and you're trying to, you know, when you're counting Georgia and when you're counting Pennsylvania, right. when you're counting like uh, uh, Arizona down to individual votes. Um, and people are going to say that even that process is corrupt and, pr and, and put plate and put practices in places, even after the election that are going to disenfranchise voters. What you're talking about is the creation of that monolith. I think it's so dangerous because it doesn't allow for people, obviously the monolith suggests that there's not a variation, but those variations are being exploited. That lack of variation is being right. absolutely exploited by capitalism, by politics, um, in order to keep us in this place where we're like, I can't even get to know my neighbor because we like we have to vote the same way, but I could potentially like not agree with their politics, you know, like right. I yeah, know. it's it's I think since the Civil War, uh, since black freedmen uh, got the right to vote, almost every presidential election, the vast majority of congressional and state elections have been single issue direct democracy referenda for black voters. It's not been comparing one party's policy agenda versus the others. It's been which party is more pro-civil rights, period. That's the only question we can afford to ask. I can't ask about national security or taxes or regulation or the environment or abortion or same thing. All these other questions are, are uh, secondary to the prime question of which party is not going to be revanchist in its racial politics. But those things are the things that Black people are caring about too, like homophobia yeah. in the Black community, oh, lack absolutely. of food resources absolutely. in the Black community. All of that like, gets these are muted. All, they, they, all those preferences get muted in these in our two-party system of democracy and and so um this is why you see black folks voting so monolithically on election days because our parties have aligned over the question of race there's always been one party that's more pro-civil rights and one party that's more racial conservative if not outright uh, segregationist and so it takes it, it removes agency from black voters when the parties are, are um are presented in this way and doesn't allow us to uh, express ourselves, the kind of way we express ourselves at the barbershop and beauty salons right. and churches and book clubs and all these places outside of the public eye, we see the diversity, the public doesn't get that opportunity. Yeah, so Ryan, I really appreciated your focus on history. One thing that I think a lot of at least white liberals would be talking about is, yeah, we know about the Southern strategy, but then you also pointed out what I basically am calling the Northern strategy of the 1940s, right. where, where it's like, hey, like black people, we know vote as a block monolithically. So now after great migration, let's actually win the election. Can you say more about that? Can you speak? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the, one of the shortcomings in the way we teach American history, one of the many is that Jim Crow and racism was a Southern problem and that Northerners were enlightened and, um, were, didn't practice discrimination and all that, it's just not true at all. Um, so what we see happening in the Great Migration from 1900 to 1960, about 6 million Black people leave the South. Before 1900, 92-93% of Black folks in America lived in Southern states. And by 1960-1970, something like 45% of Black folks live outside of the South. And so the, their destination states, New Jersey, New York, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, they see these influx of black migrants who begin to change local politics. 
because remember the 14th and 15th amendment made them citizens and gave them the right to vote. But in the South, those rights have been removed from black folks in ways that they had not been removed in the North because there wasn't enough of a black population to make a difference for, for, uh, for government to exert that much energy in removing those rights. So as black folks start moving in, they begin to access the franchise and alter local and state politics. And so what happens is Northern Democrats, the Republican Party is still the party of Lincoln, but they're getting distant from that whole super pro-civil rights black suffrage piece and thinking more along economic terms. And so in the North, uh, frankly, nationwide, Republicans are starting to say all these civil rights um, requirements and regulations that are coming along are making it hard for businesses to operate. And so the same kind of Republican Party we recognize today that doesn't like regulation was pushing back on the civil rights regulations that would require hiring and housing protections for these new black migrants. At the same time, you've got Southern Democrats who are saying, separate but equal, keep black folks in their place. And then you've got Northern Democrats that aren't married to the regulatory stance and aren't really married to the racial politics of the South, looking, they are basically opportunists. And they say, we've got all these black voters who are kind of homeless in their politics, let's go for them. And they do. And so we see FDR make pushes for him. We see Truman, um, he made an explicit push for, for black voters and thanks to black migrants in Illinois and Ohio wins the 1948 election months after desegregating the military and desegregating the federal workforce. Political actions that weren't, were not a result of moral epiphany that he had suddenly in 1948, but because he recognized I will not win the 1948 presidential election if I don't have black voters supporting me. So the North is where we've seen today still the most segregation in schools. They fought most vociferously against busing um, because the urban areas were Northern places, not in the, in the Southern states that still were quite rural in the early part of the 20th century. So it had its own version of Jim Crow. It just was exercised in a, in a, uh, with more regulatory ways and also through the use of law enforcement in the criminal justice system, where white immigrants who were treated like second-class citizens took patronage jobs as a way to get ahead themselves, but served as a buffer between uh, political and economic elites in the North and these new black migrants that everyone kind of agreed were unwelcome, every, you know, the sort of white populations in the North. So white immigrants, you see lots of them joining police forces, Italians, the Polish, um, Irish, in these northern and midwestern cities as buffers between black migrants and, and, the, and the elite. And that is how they're policed in the north through police forces and law enforcement. And as in the south, terrorism and vigilantism wow. is, uh, is sort of the order of the day. It it's se- incredible. It, it seems to me, like you had talked about the way that history is taught, like I definitely got the like, the North, yes, but uh, you know, coming through and hearing all the all the things that you're talking about, and realizing folks like James Baldwin talking about how California was just just as racist as the worst <laughs> places in the South, like all these different things, like it makes me think of. And Mark and I have been talking about this a little bit. It makes me think of like the pawnship this creates out of Black people mm. and and Black voters and the tokenism mm-hmm. that this creates. Because right, you have like such cognitive dissonance. So take the like. The, the Great Migration, for example, you have what you have folks like moving. My family was like a part, parts of my family were a part of that. Came yeah. on over here to California, <laughs> came on over to the sawmills, you know, not, but nobody ever told me that there were sawmills in Arkansas. Nobody ever told me that people were owning sawmills in Arkansas, but that's besides the point. 
So we come, people are talking about how only people who are able to leave left, only the privileged of, of folks who are left. And so you have this like th this breaking up of a black community that would provide more variation, um, that would provide more different like perspective and, and points of view, um, different levels of education, different job interests. Um, and you kind of pluck those people and put them in different places and switch up the way you regulate them so you think that it's becoming different, but still let capitalism rule kind of the way that that rights are given politically, right? And like you yeah. create this, you create this like pawn to where, okay, if you move to the north, you have to deal with this. If you move to the south, you have to deal with this. If you move to any other place. Or let alone, God forbid, if you don't vote in 2021, someone's gonna call you like, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Just, I feel, I feel, I feel that like the pawnship that is created out of not only our vote but our issues, you know, our struggles, yeah. like all of those things. When you talk about the way that that these policies were codified, these things were codified within our nation, right? Like. That seems like, how yeah. do we get away from that? There's no escaping it. And so structural racism, is that, that is its job, is, is, to is to turn people into instruments and tools in service of a broader structuring of society. Uh, and so when Black folks moved around, it was basically choose your oppression. You know, right. there's the violent social sort in the South. There's the, the kinder, gentler, but just as prolific and and uh, unjust kinds in the North and, and a different variety in the Midwest in the West. So here's, it's, it's kind of a big question, but here, here's what I'll say. We're seeing some of its remnants and how, and, and its evolution over time. So in democratic primaries, this is where you get to see some of the variety of politics in black America, because now everyone's in the same party. So the party heuristic that that is taken away. And now you can assess people on their character or their policy stances or their past. And so what we're seeing is this is what we saw in 2020 is that regions of black folks vote differently. The southern part, uh, black folks living in the south tend to be older and more conservative. So they it's no wonder that South Carolina black voters went for Biden because he was sort of pragmatic, centrist, well-established reputation, even if it wasn't perfect. They know who the guy was and that mattered. But when you went to the Midwest and the West, you saw more black folks who were younger voting for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth yeah. Warren because their politics are shaped differently. The issue is that in 1970, I was born in 75, so everyone, I grew up in North Carolina, but even after I went to college and met black folks from all over the country, I went to Hampton and HBCU, it, everyone was like the grandchild of someone from the South. Right. You, you were like only one or two generations removed from the South, if you were removed at all. But today, um, you will see people whose grandparents or great-grandparents were born in New York or right. Chicago or Boston or California. And so that tie to the South, that shared experience, historical experience, isn't the same for this generation as it was for my generation. And as a result, the politics begin to take on regional flavors where it's more progressive out West, younger up North, and older and more conservative in the South, that, that um, it's, it's demonstrated, in, particularly in Democratic primaries, yeah. um, when, for Democratic presidential primaries. So it's, it is a choose your oppression sort of in a historical sense, but the presence of oppression um, is, is a, a feature of the Black experience in America. But mm. the answer to that oppression is different based on your generation, based wow. on the regions now where you live, and, uh, and, and based on um, sort of the, even the local and state politics and how responsive they are. To yeah. 
Wow. Wait, did you just say something? It seemed like you were a little bit hopeful there, meaning like, <laughs> especially in primate, is that where you're going? Because in your piece, you're talking about how deliberation is the lifeblood of a healthy democracy. Toward the end of your piece, you're talking about how right. you got back together with your family. You all really talked about the issues, but it was almost like this moment that wasn't totally real. It was like a private moment that you had with your family. But now I feel like you said something a little bit more hopeful than what was going on in the piece, or are you saying that that's just like saved for primaries? I'm saying we have like reasons to hope, but just because we get glimpses of what a functional democracy could look like where black folks aren't shoved into a corner, doesn't mean that our democratic system is going to respond to those uh, inclinations. So Black Twitter was alive and Kamala Harris was in the primary still, Elizabeth Warren in the primary still, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden. And there were Black people debating about which candidate would be better for racial equity, for racial justice, uh, for economic security, et cetera. And those were real debates. But as soon as the nomination was decided and it's now Trump versus Biden, um, we saw the very dangerous things in democracy that I warn about in the piece. We saw everyone sort of come together. Look, we had our, our debates, we had our disputes, but now we recognize something bigger is at play here. Right. We can either vote for the Democrats who are, are more pro-civil rights, or we can vote for, for Trump and the Republican Party, which appears to be you know, racially revanchist. There isn't a, now there's no room for debate anymore. Yeah. Now the debate around healthcare, Medicare versus for all versus a public option, or um, you know forgiving student loans versus uh, baby bonds, like all those conversations went out the window, or at least were were muted some. And it was which candidate is not going to roll back voting rights? Which candidate is going to shrink the criminal justice system? And then the difference gets muted. So I there are reasons to be hopeful when um, we can engage politics more fully and comprehensively and show our diversity. But our two-party winner-takes-all system of politics, congressional and presidential, and frankly, gubernatorial and senatorial, often re rolls back whatever hope I feel in a primary season, because uh, at the end of the day, on, on November election days, you're choosing between the Civil Rights Party and the party that, that isn't, doesn't appear to be that interested in it. And that does not give me much. And I don't think that distinction is going to end uh, anytime soon unless there's some really principled leadership coming out of the Republican Party in short order. And mm -hmm. given the Senate trial around impeachment, this, I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Don't even get me started. <laughs> don't even get me started on this clown show. Okay, regardless. <laughs> Something that's really sticking with me, I'm like 33, you know, around the same age that you were when you had first voted, you know, right. and I'm, I just, and like, I understand what you're saying about people not having like a connection to the South. Um, but the connection I've always had to the South is that it was terrible for Black people to live there. Like it was nothing, right. you know, when I, I had traveled to Mississippi and, and lived there six months, everybody was like, why, you know, um, why would you even put yourself in that situation? And in my brain, I'm like, at least, out, at least out there, it's up front. Like at least out there, I can, mm -hmm. like somebody will call me a pawn to my face, you know? And speaking speaking to that like internal oomph like internal will to stay engaged like what advice like what kind of like words do you have because like i watched the i watched all four hours of the impeachment arguments yesterday and i by the end of it like i was like on one hand i was like okay it's fine like my life is like not on the best terms right now but i'm fine like if they can let this guy get up here and argue for trump but on the other hand i'm like 
these are the people that are responsible for making the decisions right. and have been. So how do you stay like hopeful? Whatever. Like I'm not concerned yeah. about that word. Like how do you stay <laughs> realistically engaged? It's tough, um, but I, I think I think you just have to find the good news stories that show how people's efforts, even if it's long-term, decade-long efforts, are, are changing our society. I, look, we're not perfect, but I'm much happier being a Black man in 2020 than I would be being a Black man in 1920. And that, that progress is real. And that didn't just happen. That is the result of Black folks' work, and, uh, and along with many other Americans who recognize we're not living up to our principles. And so be part of that work so that in 100 years, folks aren't saying, why did the previous generations get comfortable and let, let this thing fall apart. And, and instead we'll say, um, I am so thankful that as horrible as they had it compared to us today that they kept fighting. Wow. So there's that. The other part of it is um, even in the South, you still have very red Republican states, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida's quite red, South Carolina. But in those states, you have uh, the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, black man, mayor of Richmond, Virginia, black Jackson man, too. mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. Black man, mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, black woman, uh, and mayor of Atlanta, black woman. So in these really red states, there is black political power that is ascendant, that is, I think is going to, it's creating a new South. And I think the future of American democracy is going to be tied to the future of democracy in the South when state level Republican leadership begins to butt heads with local level black leadership across party lines and, um, uh, we, we will see how, how it, they can manage there. Some other folks, Charles Blow, I think, recently made this argument. Like, if racism is everywhere, then why live in New York City where racism is going to cost you $500,000 for a one-bedroom apartment and everyone here votes Democrat anyway when you can move to Georgia yeah. and live you know, much better in a, a cheaper cost of living and maybe begin to flip red states like Georgia was and, and turned them into blue states to be more friendly to questions of racial justice and racial equality. So the problem is we can't do it all. So you kind of have to pick, um, pick your area to fight, recognize that you may not win that fight in your lifetime, but that your legacy is the fighting. Your legacy is that you continue the journey from previous generations that you can lead to the next generation. And you may have a better quality of life in the process of it um, uh, because that, that fight gives you purpose. Uh, it's not completely satisfying, but it, uh, it at least gives you like a, a superordinate goal to work towards that uh, I think is, has to be the reason that we, uh, we the, the fight against racism is a multi-generational fight and we, it's just our turn to do our part. Yeah, that's Thanks. awesome. Finding that part is tough. It's already taken so long. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think the fight is worth it, though. And it does require, you know, every Abraham Lincoln, like, reinterpreted the Declaration of Independence. And Martin Luther King reinterpreted the Constitution and the Declaration for a New Generation. So it's, uh, I think, part of the challenge is latching on to the, the things that define America's principles or promise or, or goals that we're not living up to. And then showing, look, do we believe in equality? Well, let's look at all the ways that we're not fostering equality. And... Uh, show how the the um, the fight the, the fight for to end structural racism is actually the same fight for equality and liberty that previous generations have fought for, and the marriage of the American mythology to the very real fight for structural racism is important um, because it, it shows that the two things are not in in um, intention, which 
you know, a lot of folks would like to believe either you love the country or you think right. the, the country is racist, but you can't do both. Like, no, you, you can do both. Like the country has behaved in racist ways since its beginning right. and the country can be better than that. So let's hold both of those ideas together and walk from the racism of the past through the, the experiences of racism today to a future where racism may never be erased, but it at least be mitigated for, for future generations. Yeah. When people ask me what I'm doing, I'm like, oh, I'm in the think tank. Like you've just given me a whole, <laughs> right. given me a whole new way to just be in my room thinking about things. <laughs> thinking about stuff, that's right. And, and trying to move the conversation just a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a good life, I, I can't lie. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your piece. Thanks so much for speaking with us. I can't wait to talk with article clubbers um, about this piece. Just thank you so much for making the time. No, thank you. And I would love to come back. I, my book comes out in June. So uh, this it's 300 pages of all of this stuff. And then some. So um, there will be more to discuss. Do you have a title for it? I do. It's called When the Stars Begin to Fall, which is a line from an old Negro spiritual. And the subtitle is Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. And it basically wow. shares the lessons of Black solidarity since our arrival here and takes those attributes and shows how we can create a multiracial solidarity by learning from Black people's experience in the United States. That sounds great. And so, yeah, really like Article Club is also technically a book <laughs> chapter club too. So like, you oh, know, perfect. Would, would love to have you back if you're open to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you again for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to talk yeah. to you. Talk to you Enjoy soon. yourself today. Take care. Thanks. Okay, bye now. Bye. I want to thank Dr. Johnson yet again for taking the time to answer our questions about his outstanding article. Thank you so much for being so gracious and generous and for deepening our thinking. Everyone out there who's listening, if this interview interested you and you're not signed up yet for this month's discussion, I encourage you to give Article Club a try. You can find out more information over at articleclub.org. All right, that's it for now. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great week.